Sing out the jubilee with all the fire we can breathe. We're going to go potty right after this. I know. We took it all down and now we have these mics again, Ophi. I am recording. I'll pause it. So one thing I think about a lot is why people need long-term disability insurance. And this sounds like a logical place to put an ad, but that's not what this is. So I was thinking, instead of long-term disability insurance, what are other careers I could have that don't involve seeing or typing or moving? And even though I like to talk with my hands, wow, (laughs) as I was saying... Um, I was trying to think of alternative careers that don't involve any of the things that I do now. And I think reading books to the kids has equipped me. Okay, that's an overstatement. Put me in the mindset of, oh, if I can learn how to really have different voices for these different children's book characters. Odin is vetoing this idea, but that I could be a voice actor. And just as long as I could speak... I could still bring an income. Onan hates this idea. Yeah, welcome to episode two of the Free State Podcast. This is Jace and my wife, Laura, and we are inviting you into our end-of-day conversations about how to live as free people, even though the culture seems to be more and more hostile to those who try to be free and independent. These are the kinds of things Laura and I typically talk about once the boys go to bed. Not that we don't talk about it in front of them too, but we often don't have dedicated time until the end of our day to really have deep conversations. And that is if we're not binge watching Apple TV. That's true too. We've never watched Ted Lasso, but every other show we've watched on Apple TV has been a hit. Really good. The only one we didn't really get into was For All Mankind, but I've been told it gets better as it goes, so I think we're going to go back to it. Not that you care what we're watching. In today's episode, we are going to talk about lab-grown meat. Last week, the FDA approved lab-grown meat. And we're also going to talk about lab-grown babies. And hopefully those two aren't the same thing. And we kind of tease out those differences. Hope you're hungry. And if you have any questions or comments or things you want us to talk about, you can send us an email at freestatepod at gmail.com. And if you want to be on the show or leave us a voice message, you can go to anchor.fm slash freestate and record a voice message there. And maybe we'll talk to you. Okay, so the first story we're going to talk about is how lab-grown meat is safe to eat, according to the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA last week declared a lab-grown meat product developed by a California startup to be safe for human consumption, paving the way for products derived from real animal cells, but that don't require an animal to be slaughtered, to someday be available in U.S. grocery stores and restaurants. Upside Foods, formerly known as Memphis Meats, is harvesting cells from viable animal tissues and growing edible flesh, God, that's gross, under controlled conditions in bioreactors. Flesh, the firm's, oh, flesh, the firm says, will be identical to that raised conventionally. 
Alternatives to traditional animal agriculture are seen as a way to mitigate climate change and have been a major topic of discussion this week at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Egypt. Upside estimates that upon approval from the agriculture department, it would still be months before its chicken could be on the market. So the FDA has approved it, but it also needs approval from the USDA. And then it would still be months before the chicken could be sold. So what was your source for that story? This is from Washington Post. I have one more bit. The regulation of lab-grown meat in the United States is being done collaboratively between the FDA and the USDA. Under a March 2019 formal agreement, both agencies agreed to a joint regulatory framework wherein the FDA oversees cell collection, cell banks and cell growth and differentiation, and the USDA will oversee the processing and labeling of human food products derived from the cells. Okay, so this product is so whacked and is so new that like, Government agencies are like, what the hell are we doing? Like, is there, it's not an animal. So is it a drug? How do we regulate it? Whose jurisdiction is this? Like, it's so new and weird that regulators don't even know what to do with it. And so every firm that makes these products must get approval from each agency. And then I thought this was weird. The exception is cultivated seafood, which needs only FDA approval. There are weird regulatory boundaries like that in other cases too i'm trying to think of one but especially between fda and usda where they have statutes that require them to look at similar areas and this also makes me think about there was um there was an interview done by politico during the height of the baby formula shortage and fda regulators themselves said that the f and fda was silent Because they focused on drugs so much. And so they just kind of like blow off their food inspections and their food approval processes. And they just focus on drugs so much because it's the profitable side. Well, that and USDA does a lot of the food side because they're in ag. So would you eat lab grown meat? I think so. You would? So here's the problem. I don't know how they simulate. people. But it's not. It's beef or poultry. Or seafood, I guess. No, well, I don't trust it, but I mean, the current meat alternatives seem to just be seed oils and cardboard, so I'm not going to eat that. But if it's molecularly identical to filet and it tastes like filet, it does, especially. Well, that's why I asked what source that was, because it seems like the story was written by someone who hated it. Because if you're trying to make this sound appealing, calling it flesh. Made in a bioreactor. This is is, is WAPO. It sounds like a comic book, like how someone's going to get their powers. Okay, so I'll read you another little bit from an opinion piece that was published in NBC News. Just to frame this up here, this one is, quote, Don't be so quick to dismiss lab-grown meat. Some members of the general public are squeamish about cell-cultured meat. Public opinion surveys have found that consumers, especially older and less educated shoppers, (coughs) apparently me, Hesitate to accept cell-cultured meat as a viable food option. Caution isn't necessarily a bad thing, but these critiques of cell-cultured meat are just thinly disguised neophobia. People just feel it is unnatural. I did not know what neophobia was because I'm so uneducated. So I had to look it up. Neophobia is the fear of anything new, especially a persistent and abnormal fear. In its milder form, it can manifest as the unwillingness to try new things or break from routine. In the context of children, the term is generally used to indicate a tendency to reject unknown or novel foods. Yes, that's me. 
I mean, you're a picky eater anyway. I do not want to have set lab grown meat. Not yeah. Interested. Okay. It it just it seems intuitively seems like it would be like slimy. Okay, but here's the promise though. They're saying that they're going to be able to open up the tray cover and you're not going to be able to tell the difference between their lab grown fillet and the fillet you get at Costco. Okay. Funny business aside, you and I buy free range chicken and grass fed beef, 100. percent Yeah. Grass fed well, beef. So this aspect of it. Right. I'm on board. Okay. So we do that for a reason. It's yeah. important to point this out because the chickens ideally that we would like to eat have themselves eaten grass and bugs and dirt and things and and been exposed to sunlight exposed to sunlight and themselves absorbed the nutrients that we hope to also take from them for the benefit of our bodies yeah that's my biggest hold up with this cell grown or lab grown thing they're not going to have sunlight i mean i guess they can put the cultures outside i don't know how they're going to make it identical to the meat that you get from an animal that's been humanely raised yeah and the other thing is thanks to free trade mostly food the food supply global food supply has dramatically increased in the last several decades and i more than anything want starving children to be fed if that means cutting some corners if that means lab-grown meat and they're missing some nutrients, but they're not starving, fine. Yeah, GMO rice. If that mean, yeah, exactly. I'm talking about GMOs also. Yeah. If that means GMO food, if that means cutting some corners, fine. I just think that putting our energy toward this, as opposed to rolling back existing food regulations that would make it more accessible and more affordable for family farms to exist, is the wrong place to direct that energy. I think that we need to be moving maybe simultaneously in two different silos. Maybe this is one, but also maybe if you'll remember when I worked for Thomas Massey, he had a bill called the Prime Act. If you didn't know, okay, so there's like several parts of meat processing. There's like raising the cat. Okay, we live in a townhome. So just forgive all of my city slicker mistakes here. If you are a farmer, yeah, I'm from Kansas, but like I didn't grow up on a farm, okay? I have dogs. Anyways, so there's like a bunch of different processes and all of it's regulated, but one of the most highly regulated parts of getting a meat to the grocery store is slaughtering, is the slaughterhouse. Yeah, I mean, it could get gross, so that makes sense. Yeah, so you take your animal to a slaughterhouse that has to be um, like approved by by the USDA. Not only that, but that slaughterhouse has to employ a full-time inspector from the Department of Agriculture that is paid by the slaughterhouse, not the federal government, which is so whack. Like, it goes down to the the, the details of the specific regulate. They have to have a particular parking spot at the facility. Oh, wow. It's insane. That sounds expensive. Correct. And so how, how do family farms afford that? So I'm just going to read to you a little bit about the Prime Act just to kind of frame up what we're talking about here. Mm. So those USDA inspected slaughterhouses are few and far between, which means that local and corporate farmers alike often have to travel hundreds of miles to the nearest facility. And here, this is going to be a counterpoint to that climate change argument that they were talking about with lab-grown meat. There are only 86 approved immediate slaughter facilities in the United States. In the whole country, there are only 86 approved slaughterhouses. There are only three in the whole state of California and none in 
Vermont, which is this author's home state. This poses a huge financial burden for small farms, which have to resort to legal loopholes to get around regulations under current law. Although it is illegal to sell meat from a non-USDA facility, it is legal for a farm to sell you an animal or a share of an animal and kindly offer to slaughter it for you at a non-USDA slaughterhouse. You know how you can like buy a quarter of a cow or half a cow. Yeah, so I hear that and I'm taking in the regulatory side and the food side and it makes me think of the debate over energy policy. So mixing in coal with wind and solar and nuclear and a lot of people on the Republican side say, oh, I, I'm for an all of the above approach. I want to have all uh, energy sources in our power grid as we're transitioning away from dirtier sources of energy into cleaner. That's kind of my position here in the food. I'm with you. It seems like these regulatory barriers make it a lot harder to get smaller, usually more humane farms into the grocery supply market. And you saw during the pandemic, you saw these pervasive regulations you and I both know, they incentivize big companies who can afford those regulations to just grow bigger and they shut out the little man. And so during the pandemic, similar to the baby formula shortage, since there's only like four, like four big meat packing companies, four big meat companies. That sounds right. Um, there were delays in supply and shipment because when one snag, when there's one snag in the operation, the whole thing goes down. Whereas if you had a local community and a local, what is that called? Thread? Th- no, local. Like ties. You're rooted in one place. It's like a, a network. Like network. It's like sewing. Like a local. Hmm. I don't know. I can't think of it. <laughs> I'll think of it like in 20 minutes. <laughs> patchwork. Ah. Okay. If you have the local patchwork set up, they can more easily overcome supply snags. You're not dependent on like, you know, a railroad from California to Nebraska to get you your ground beef. You can drive down the road. Exactly. And this reminds me of all those conversations Joe Rogan had about hunting. So he was thinking about giving up meat and going vegan until he became a hunter. And he said, well, at least I know the meat I kill myself was wild and no one mistreated it. And I know exactly where it's been and I process it myself. And he feeds this whole family for the year and even feed some of his friends hunting. That's probably easier to do when you're a millionaire. Oh, for sure. And that, well, that's my point. He can do that and people with similar resources and time can do that. But it's not if 300 million Americans decided, okay, yes, that's going to be my primary source of meat is hunting or even just sustainable farming. It'd be impossible. And so that's where I see the all of the above approach coming in. There could be a place for lab-grown meat. And I don't know why we have to call it cell-cultured and bioreactor. That makes it sound like nuclear waste that no one should consume. So, of course, the I FDA mean... approved it. No, and yeah, I'm I'm with you right now. But if I think they should, if there are people serious about this, uh, they should continue to invest in it. I don't want tax dollars going to it. Well, that's obviously the next but, step. There's obviously going to be tax credits. And well, yeah. Grants. Especially, I bet it's part of the Green New Deal because if cow farts are the main source of greenhouse gases, then it would make sense that they would want to get cows without the methane. I just, I read that NBC opinion piece where it said that people who oppose it call it neophobia for a reason. It just seems very, it, I just made your elitist vibes. Like, if you don't like this, you're just hillbilly 
scum and it's just because you don't you don't know any better well it seems like a stupid political strategy to immediately put it with phobia because then you have that just calls up like homophobia election denier holocaust denier it's gonna politicize the issue and if you're wanting to get americans to eat fewer hamburgers or switch to this kind of hamburger demonizing the people who like hamburgers doesn't seem like the smartest strategy because yeah there's an ick factor to new things and that's a normal thing going back to when we found out what was first edible like i don't want to be the first guy that tried a mushroom to see if it was poisonous i always think about like who were the first people that realized that if you eat some you know gross undercooked chicken that you'll die like that poor soul yeah well and i wonder if it was trial and error like the guy who discovered you need to wash your hands before you deliver a baby and so they finally found out oh well it seems like 160 degrees is good enough for the chicken. I think the reason I approach lab-grown meat with such skepticism is because it seems like, obviously, the FDA is involved now. And so once the government gets their hands into something, it's going to become something that they uh, hyperfixate on and, and promote. and But at the same time, overlook necessary steps and ingredients, let's say. Because also last week, there was a study that came out and it said, oh, it turns out these foods that the government has been telling you are really bad for you all along are actually the most nutritious for you, such as red meat, raw dairy, eggs, eggs, you know, women's health magazine wrote this piece that you're probably not getting enough protein in your diet. But if you look back at the food pyramid that the government published in what was it? The 1980s. Yeah. Seventies and eighties. And they've revised it ever since, but they published this food pyramid that if you, and if you look at all the people who were in their twenties, thirties at the time, are all like now diabetic and have heart disease. The main food, what it was like, eat like six servings of bread. bread yeah. Mm-hmm. And then White it was bread. meat. And then like vegetables was tiny. Right. So yeah. they wanted you to eat white bread all day long and now the same people are approving lab-grown meat i'm just skeptical well yeah i'm not going to just take the government's word for it i'm going to look at whatever company it is and they have an incentive to make it as palatable as possible i'm not going to be palatable the the highest value there no of course not nutrition (laughs) is but you're the one who wants to enjoy the meal i'd be fine if it just had as much protein and tasted close to a steak and wasn't going to give me cancer yeah one of the things that made jace fall in love with me when we met was that i told him that his lunches that he packed every day because by the way it was the same exact lunch and he ate the same exact dinner and the same exact breakfast and dessert literally was it monday through friday or was it quite literally every day of the week no it was work weekdays because it's what i brought to work i told you it looked like dog food yeah i mean it was a lentil (laughs) stew it 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 might have looked that way. It tasted good. It had sausage in and it. Then and then you would be sitting there like when it was quiet and you would be stirring it and it would go. Oh, my. Yeah, like God. mac and cheese. If it had been mac and cheese, you would have never said anything. But then we might not have gotten married. That's true. Also, you would have died because fun fact, listeners, Jace is anaphylactic to dairy. Yeah, we're still working on that. The science is still unsettled about where that comes from and how to fix it okay but it might be worth mentioning while we're on the food topic that we bought raw milk yeah we got a dealer yeah we found a dealer and the reason that we did that is because i'm trying to wean the baby fairly soon and i've heard that raw milk is kind of a similar phenomenon to raw honey and that it can help reduce seasonal allergies because the theory is that if you're eating raw honey then you're being exposed to the allergens that are in your 
you know, your your the region of the the area that you live. Yeah, that and, makes sense because the bees would be pollinating the flowers that are right. giving off what's making you sneeze. And so same idea with the milk. It comes from the cows who are eating the grass who are living outside in the yeah. same area near you. And we just I see this in a lot of areas of life. We like tend to just go back to the way that things were and call it a new thing. And it's like, well, actually, that was by design. That was how it was meant to be. And isn't it kind of sort of magical that it all intertwines in this way? Magical or is it providence? So this is the thing. I was listening to a different podcast today. We are to the point where we don't understand how all of these systems in our society work. And maybe no one ever did. But we're getting to the point where we're questioning everything like just to take the fda for instance i would say for the past 30 years the majority of people just took whatever it said for granted and now you don't and you have good reasons and not just because of covid there's any number of things they've gotten wrong the food pyramid etc i think covid just kind of lifted the lid and let us all actually look inside at the box that none of us cared to to dissect for so many years yeah, people talk about how AI is a black box, and so you worry about discrimination because you don't know how the algorithm works. Well, guess what? We don't know how anything works. Yeah, they've changed the definition of vaccine four times in the last Recently. 30 years. Yeah. A vaccine no longer means that it's something that prevents you from getting a disease or transmitting a disease. Like They've changed it however many times just under the radar. Well, but even to move away from that, we don't know how cars work. We don't know how. What do you mean? A I lot don't of know how cars work. Well, yeah, but when I was growing up, my dad taught me how to change oil, how to change, mm. how to put new brake pads on, how to change. Uh, I did transmission fluid, brake fluid. I could do all of that myself in the driveway. Now you have to have a computer do half of it. And so going back to your point about how we only had four meat processing plants and then the supply chain crisis during COVID, if one of them had a problem, the whole food system shut down. I think the rest of the economy is fragile in the same way. And so that's one thing we talk about regularly is how to be more independent of that centralized system. And it's not even like, oh, now you need to be an extreme prepper. But if you're cognizant of the fact that so much of our society is centralized and one failure can have these cascading effects and all of a sudden you don't have food or water, you just make different choices so that you're less dependent on that. Companies have only gotten bigger and controlled more of whatever sectors that they're in. Like Amazon is now in healthcare, right? Yeah, I mean, they're in everything, but yeah. So. Right, I'm trying they to do say prescription that, like, drugs. the big companies, you know, Amazon, Apple, Google, they are doing more than they ever have before. Yeah. So the risk of what you're talking about is greater than it ever has been. Yeah, that's right. A recipe for disaster. And it seems like the track record is not, oh, there's this major societal problem. Congress comes together and passes legislation to set up a new regulatory framework to protect the public. It's typically oh, there was a problem a long time ago. Now we're going to set up regulations mm -hmm. to solidify and kind of freeze in amber the way that the market works right now. Mm -hmm. And they're going to set the status quo and it won't get it much better and it won't get much worse and it's just going to be that way. And something tells me that that is not the best <laughs> alternative. I think if you look, and I'm the baby formula crisis, we talk about how WIC, the government program for, what is it? 
women, infants, and children, I think. And so there are big contracts that are given. The federal government gives big contracts to these, just, it's like two or three big formula companies. Yeah. And whichever formula gets this contract for any certain area of the company, that is the air, that is the formula that will be given in the hospitals that fall within that certain region to the women who give birth in the hospitals in that area. Yeah. And so if you give birth to a, a baby in a hospital and you're having a hard time breastfeeding and the nurse comes to you and says, don't worry, we have formula on hand and it's Infamil. It, normally it's Similac, I think, in these hospitals. Well, they rotate, right? And so you get, well, it just depends on who was awarded the contract for right. any given year by the government. So the government's deciding what your baby eats. And so you're giving them Similac that you found in the hospital. The baby drinks it. The baby likes it. If you are a first-time parent and something works for you, you are not. You are not even looking at an alternative option. You are taking that one and you are running with it because everything else is so chaotic and unknown that you just like you white knuckle anything that works for you. So if you're getting Similac in the house, and these companies know that these formula companies know that. So this is a massive benefit for them because they get Similac in the hospital and they use Similac for the next 12 to 15 months to feed their babies. That's a really good point. And going back to what you were saying about media and representation, that's why advertising matters so much because what the kids latch on to then, they're more likely to be brand loyal for their whole life. That's funny that you use the word latch. Oh, I didn't even hear <laughs> So the point about caring about what your kids see and about what your kids eat early on is because it establishes a pattern for the rest of their life. Yeah. And I know you have to care about everything when you're a parent. It's a huge responsibility. And that's why. Because it does matter. The government didn't do anything to resolve that part of the baby formula shortage, which was one of, if not the major contributors to the problem. The fact that they award these contracts by region? The fact that that contract program just incentivizes and reinforces the monopolistic control that these three, two to three formula companies have over the entire market. Hmm. Instead of like resolving that or fixing that or even addressing that, they just permitted some shipments of foreign baby formula from to come over into the United States. And instead of allowing for European imports, which, by the way, are much healthier than American formula brands because they don't contain corn syrup solids, they just did one-time shipments over. And I'm sure there was some lobbying efforts from these major formula brands to make sure that, you know, some long-term solution like that wasn't put in place because they care about the babies so much. Yeah, and we'll see if that works. I think there's still a formula shortage. Last time I was, mm -hmm. we don't use formula, but last time I was at the store, the shelves are still pretty empty. Yeah, and you really struggle to find a brand. I started looking after the, the, the shortage at the back of the brands to see, and like a lot of them come from that Abbott Laboratories, Yeah, mm -hmm. which was the center of the infection, the bacterial outbreak. And I was like, this is, this is scary. You know, if you were if you were a mom who were, was feeding their baby formula, just it would have been would be terrifying. Yeah, if you're dependent on formula, and then the whole supply chain dries up. Yeah, you're a, you're, you're a, stuck. Yeah, you're a slave to that. Yeah. So where does that? Where did you get that analogy? Was you that Maria Montessori? That. You know where I got that. Okay, so yes, Maria Montessori was an Italian physician and educator best known for the philosophy of education that bears her name and her writing on scientific pe pedagogy. 
At an early age, Montessori enrolled in classes at an all-boys technical school with hopes of becoming an engineer. Anyways, okay, so she was a teacher in Italy. And her philosophy basically is she was an instructor for poor children whose moms had to go to work because she had, they had no other option. And she saw that these children would thrive when given a certain type of task. And the short way of putting it is that Montessori is to give your child foster independence for everyday tasks that teaches them how to live life as we know it. Regular tasks. Encourage them to chop up vegetables. Encourage them. You see like the basic white millennial girls on social media with like all the wooden toys and <laughs> like it's no plastic toys, no electronic toys. And it's very like going back to early days and teaching them how to do basic household functional Declan dresses himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we like Montessori. Yeah. Um, so we generally adhere to it. But in her book, she says that it's important to teach children how to do these everyday tasks because what man can't do for himself is what he becomes a slave to. It's what he is enslaved to. And she uses the example of a husband who doesn't know how to cook dinner and the wife becomes sick. What do you do? You are a slave to not knowing how to cook dinner for yourself because you starve. And so we must teach our sons how to cook food so that if they are ever in a situation that requires them to know how to cook food, their lack of knowledge is not what they are enslaved to. Yeah. And I thought that was so powerful and so cool. And I'm using that philosophy in a lot of different areas. I want the boys to know how to cook and take care of babies and clean and all the rest. Yeah, they need to be capable, competent mm -hmm. men. Yep. And I think that's just a good way to approach life and so when we see these news stories that quote always comes to mind it's like okay well how can we get away from being dependent on these systems do you want to talk about lab-grown babies parents welcome twins from embryos frozen in 1992 for the record i was not born yet you were two i was two okay a couple has welcomed twins born from the longest frozen embryos to ever result in a live birth. Twins Lydia and Timothy Ridgway were born on October 31st in Oregon from embryos that were frozen on April 22nd, 1992. Was Bill Clinton president? Or was he running for president? He was running because I think the election in was in 92. 92. For nearly 30 years, the embryos were kept at a West Coast fertility lab until 2007 when the anonymous married couple who created the embryos donated them to the National Embryo Donation Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. After nearly three decades of being stored in liquid nitrogen at around 200 degrees below zero in a device similar to a propane tank, five of the embryos were thawed and three of them survived in February. And then the transfer happened later in March, and two of the embryos, now Lydia and Timothy, were successful. So here's my question when I read this story. I'm not sure if the parents who now have, are taking care of these children, are they heroes or are they villains? So when I read the story, it seems they're part of, it looks like even a Christian group mm -hmm. that goes and tries to save these frozen embryos from IVF clinics. So, and so is the question, are they heroes or villains because they might be creating a demand for these frozen embryos or are they that's just one of the implications? It's one of these like really annoying mind games because, okay, so there were 
there were five embryos frozen. Mm-hmm. Three of them survived the thawing process, but only two of them survived the transfer process. So there were five babies, and now there are two. Because let's keep in mind, these were fertilized eggs. These were embryos. Yeah, not fertilized. Yeah, right. Right. So these were, yeah, these were people. babies. Yeah. So that's the question, right? Because part of the article quoted, I think it was the American Society for Reproductive Health, and they were saying, well, we need to be careful. This is not adoption. Yes. They're okay. not people. So that's the other. That's another angle. So the Christian-led NEDC refers to embryo donation as, quote, embryo adoption. However, experts have clarified that this medical procedure should not be conflated with adoption. A 2016 report from, from the Ethics Committee of the blah, 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 found that the application of the term adoption to embryos is inaccurate, misleading, and could place burdens upon recipients and should be avoided. So we don't even know, like, we can't even talk in plain facts anymore. And so, like, everything is, like, fabricated with this air of, like, delicacy that's unnecessary and kind of dangerous. Well, yeah, because I'm assuming this whatever organization they were quoting is also tied to abortion. So they don't want to say that it would be bad Right. To kill. Don't call them embryos. humans because if we call them humans, then everything's different. Yeah, because ostensibly the two options, or I guess three, for these embryos where they either stay in storage, they get used for testing or just killed, or they get adopted. And we, you and I were talking about the IVF process the other day, and it's like not all fertile, so not all of the embryos, like if you and I were to go do IVF, like not all of our embryos would. Like, we would, like, throw some away? That's right. Or you store them or donate them to science. Do you literally throw them in a trash can, or do they go to some lab for stem cell research so that Nancy Pelosi can have them injected into her face? Probably both. What are we actually talking about here? Funny you say that. I was listening to a podcast the other day about storytelling, and it was talking about magic and how if you were to explain a lot of what happens in our society to someone from the Middle Ages, they would be like, oh, okay. I'm tracking. That's alchemy, or that's, in this case, necromancy. You're literally taking a human and liquefying it and injecting it into your knee to repair your meniscus or whatever. You're using blood magic. That's We have a word for that. That's necromancy. Now, you can dress it up with science and say, yeah. oh, no, I used a syringe and I yeah. bought, but what you're doing we is wrong. We believe in science in this house. Yeah, but what you're doing is wrong, and Changing the language doesn't make it okay. And there was this quote that was really gross from the couple's provider. If you're frozen at nearly 200 degrees below zero, I mean, the biological processes essentially slow down to almost nothing. Almost nothing? Yeah, I was looking at the (laughs) sausage I bought at Costco last Saturday, and it said don't freeze for more than six months. So I can only imagine... What's going on with these kids? Almost nothing. What is what is the something? What is happening? Are these kids' kidneys going to fail when they turn 30? Yeah. I, we don't know. It's back that to That seems the- highly problematic. What? I mean, here's the other thing. Okay, let's bring it back to food, even though conflating the two is really gross. I'm sorry. I hope you're not listening to this over lunch. When you flash freeze vegetables, the nutrients in those that you eat are not equivalent to the ones that you eat fresh. So what happens to humans, which I assume physiologically, biologically are a lot more complicated and intricate and delicate than vegetables? I would assume so. And we don't know because, right, these are the oldest embryos ever. They're 30 years old. 
That's just sad. And it sounds and like so this family I, is doing a good thing. These Okay, so this family has four kids of their own already. Well, these are their own too, right? They Okay, they conceived four naturally. Yeah, okay. And so I would like to sit down with them and talk to them because do they see it as adoption too, since that's the program that they went through? I assume so. Experts suggest that embryos can be frozen indefinitely. Who would know that? Are we just going to like wake up someday and all the embryos are like squirming around and they've decided to communicate to each other and they like, what is that? The, the brain exercise that like pro abortion people like to say, if there was a fertility clinic and a kid on a railroad track or something, who would you save? Yeah, Yeah. If there was a fire at a fertility clinic and there was a little boy trapped in a room too, would you save the freezer full of eggs or would you save the little boy? Yeah. Well, maybe the freezers full of eggs will like come to life and well they're already alive right they're in suspended animation so this is the problem experts suggest but on what basis well will they be viable for stem cell research maybe will they be viable for if they were put into a womb like they were supposed to be will they live full and happy and productive lives we don't know we hope so but i don't see any reason to think this family's a villain it looks like the organization they're with is going around trying to save these embryos that have just been on ice for forever it seems like the biggest question is whether we should have ivf and that raises a whole you can't host say that you can't say that well i know so you're alluding to why it raises a whole host of questions because there are a lot of infertile couples who are yeah. desperate to have a baby yeah that sounds horrible and so i feel like a jerk saying this but at the same time at what cost yeah You don't get to just throw a bunch of people away because you want a baby of your own so badly. It really feels, to me, IVF kind of feels like playing God. Not kind of. It does feel like playing God. And I read an article because I was curious about how much IVF costs because that's like one of the main things you hear is that, oh, it's super expensive. Okay, so if you're pricing, this is from Forbes, this is summer of this year. If you're pricing IVF at fertility clinics in the United States, expect to be quoted roughly twelve to fourteen thousand dollars per cycle. This, however, doesn't mean that you'll pay that figure and be done. Depending on your needs, a single IVF cycle can cost thirty thousand dollars or more. And then I read, well, how many cycles on average does it take to get pregnant? It takes women who are younger than the age of 40, between three to six cycles of IVF to have a successful transfer. So you are paying up to $30,000 three to six times. Is that why millennials can't afford a house? Because they're dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars into IVF? And why are they doing that? Because they waited too long and wanted to be a boss babe in their career and then decided at 36 that they wanted to be a mom. So this is my question. What have we done to women? Yeah. Not only have we lied and said you'll be happy and fulfilled if you pursue a career instead of getting married at the traditional age and having a family. Now we're trying to say, and don't worry, if you decide you do want to have a family, science will save you. Well, it turns out you still have to pay a blood cost to use necromancy. We can call it science all we want, but it looks like to me, and maybe I'm wrong, please send us an email or a comment. (laughs) Um, it looks like you have to kill people to get to have it all. To and it's lean not in. just that, though. I mean, this process is really hard on moms. I sure. think 
uh, I think it's Kourtney Kardashian who was going through it. And like the drugs and the therapies that these women have to go through to make themselves like fertile enough to, you know, create an environment for these eggs to thrive or these embryos to thrive. It makes you gain weight. It causes hormone fluctuations. And it also causes like the whole IVF process causes like a huge strain on your relationship. Yeah, well, I can imagine. And so what would the demand be like? Like how many families are out there that are infertile who were married young, whatever, did everything quote unquote right? What is the IVF demand from that crowd? Well, I think that's actually growing because male fertility is going down oh, at that's a, a highly point. significant rate. Yeah. And what it's, I think it's right now attributed to our exposure to microplastics. Okay. So get a hydroflask. <laughs> don't eat beyond meat. Yeah. Don't feed your babies Similac. Well, we're trying to get a baby at this point. So marry a girl young. Don't drink water out of plastic bottles that have been sitting in your garage all summer. Yeah, I feel like the guy... That's how I grew up. <laughs> yeah, well, I drank out of the hose in Houston, so mm-hmm. we're lucky we have two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was on birth control for eight years. Yeah, and eight what years. was the original reason? It wasn't even because... I had painful period cramps, and I had cystic acne. Yeah. It was super hot, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's science saying, oh, look... Here's and the doctor, the doctor at the time didn't even ask me about my diet, my exercise, my sleep routine, my emotional state, which seems highly critical for a 16-year-old, 15-year-old girl. But why would a doctor ask that when the FDA said this medication has been approved for the following uses and you come in with these symptoms and there's a pill for that? It just, all of the stories we're talking about seem to revolve around the same theme and I don't even think you picked them for that reason. The USDA, actually, it's funny you say that because even in this, I didn't read over this, but the USDA regulates fertility clinics that have these embryos in them. Embryos must meet specific requirements set by, oh, I'm sorry, not the USDA, it's the FDA. So babies are food. Embryos must meet specific requirements set by the FDA to be considered eligible for donations, as is such for all donated human tissues reproductive and non-reproductive so that's gross so the agency that regulates food and medicine regulates people dead dead babies not well i guess that was the whole planned parenthood controversy about whether they were selling parts yeah and whatever happened with that do you remember uh i know the guy who was releasing some of the videos got in a lot of trouble and had to stop i think it's still tied up in court well, it's only it's only 3% of what Planned Parenthood does. Only 3% of the time are they aborting babies, cutting them up, and selling their body parts for research. Oh, well, there you go. So, I mean, don't worry about it. Well, and so what percentage of people are using IVF? Because I'm hesitating because this, uh, it's obviously an emotionally charged topic. And I know, well, I, I, can, I feel comfortable saying both of our parents had us in their 30s and it wasn't easy mm-hmm. my mom talks about <laughs> sorry mom standing on her head after sex to try and like help the swimmers yeah they were desperate yeah so no, i, don't I can't like i can't even like. imagine and then here's a doctor saying oh well look we can give you a baby mm-hmm. we've done it for years it's safe just come to the clinic and it's no big deal 
And so if you're in that situation, why would you think about it anymore? Especially when you have the American Society for Reproductive Health or whatever telling you that, well, it's not a baby, so who cares? Yeah, but it's like it's the same thing with the meat, right? You have the American Heart Association telling you oatmeal is good for you. Red meat is bad for you. Oh, well, the American Heart Association told me this. This this industry group of certified experts is telling me that it's all oh. doctors yeah yeah they have degrees they went to school for this and i think it goes back to covid for me personally but that's what really shook everything up and it's like labels experts it's all bs yeah but to get beyond that now we see you can't rely on anything and so maybe it took a pandemic and a big shakeup. but i think i mean not to get preachy but that's god saying yeah you have to trust me. Mm-hmm. There is no other source of truth. Yeah, it was. I did feel, I mean, to use a, like a biblical term, untethered. Yeah. What? Where am I supposed to go for information? I am in the dark, reaching, searching, and it's chaos to not know who or what I can trust. Yeah, and that doesn't mean Jesus is going to come down and give me a biology textbook. But that does mean that if I'm going to be making basic decisions about what my kids consume, what food we eat, where we live, what we drink, what we put our water in. We need to get a brekkie or whatever they're called. A Berkey water filter? I was thinking about breakfast. <laughs> a Berkey. We need to get one of those. I think your dad has one. What? I'm pretty sure. They're like really expensive. That's not shocking. Okay. So we need to go get a Berkey. All of that to say, I'm not expecting God to say, okay, and here's the lab where COVID came from. But just on these fundamental things that we've delegated to supposed experts, I think the past few years have been a wake-up call to say, hey, no one actually knows anything, and we have to take responsibility for figuring out some of this stuff ourselves. I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to go read all of the peer-reviewed literature, much less do science, empirical research myself. But it has shown me that I do need to be more discerning about the experts and the people I choose to trust to help me make those decisions. But in a way, it does kind of reinforce biblical truth. And I experienced this when I was breastfeeding, for example, is such a case study in intelligent design. When the baby is sick When mom and baby are exposed to a certain illness, mom's breast milk will develop the antibodies to fight that specific illness, giving it, obviously it's from mom to baby. It's nature's medicine. When you haven't fed the baby for a while, your breast milk will have more water in it because your body is signaling that the baby's dehydrated because primary focus is hydration and then food. Mm. That's incredible. And the weaning process. So your body, if you start feeding your baby just one more time or one fewer time every day, your boobs, sorry, I'm not going to say breasts, sounds like (laughs) flesh to me. Your boobs will adjust the amount of milk almost immediately. It's wild. Yeah, that's amazing. And we talk about the meat and the chickens and they're eating the allergens that we're exposed to. All of this does reinforce intelligent design. And that does reinforce biblical. That is biblical. And reinforces why you should be rooted in a community and not reliant on these transient 
centralized systems. One of the it's things, unnatural. One of the things that actually nudged me towards Christ as an adult. This is a whole other topic for a whole other podcast, but it was kind of similar. And I've been talking to friends of mine about this recently. Was Jordan Peterson, and in, in in his faith walk, and then I tried to rationalize it with logic, and that is one of the easiest way to come to God. Oh. And that's because, counterintuitive. What do you mean? Well, because biblical truths, you see it in the world. Okay, we'll just start with a really controversial one. You shouldn't have sex with people that you're not married to because you're going to get an STD. You're going to get pregnant. Sometimes, yeah. Just that whole process proves that what the Bible says about marriage and intimacy is true. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a there's a, like, there's a physical way. scientific reason that it was designed or, you know, a consequence and mm-hmm. why it's designed in a particular way. And you're talking about the biological consequences and that's not even getting to the whole spiritual dimension mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, or emotional, psychological attachment issues that follow. Laura might cut this, but uh, this conversation reminds me that we have a whole mini series in mind about our family's struggles with infertility and some of the choices uh, that can have major ramifications for your life down the line that are completely unexpected. I'll let that be a teaser. I'm looking at her to see if that's too vague. It is too vague. I think you need to tell them that you took a 23andMe test in recent years that was quite revealing. Yeah. So a few Christmases ago, Laura's mom got us 23andMe kits. I've always wanted to know. I've been told I'm Scottish and Welsh. Let's see what county I'm from, because apparently they've got that kind of granular data. And I'm. But then when my dad met you, he was like, he kind of looks like Anthony Weiner. <laughs> <laughs> Is he Jewish? <laughs> Turns out I'm more black than Jewish. But I also found out that my dad is not my biological father. And that was a lot to be told by a faceless, centralized corporation talking about being rooted. That was a very unsettling revelation to have come through my email. To put it mildly. Yeah. So we'll have a whole mini series on that. We're not sure how many episodes. It just depends on where things take us. But one of our friends said that we should sell this story to the New York Times. It's not a bad idea. It's not, but at this point, it's almost cliche. I mean, you find out about secret half-brothers and affairs, and there was nothing like that but this in this story. But this isn't the result of an affair. No, no. Um, it goes back to what we were talking about, about infertility. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a wild story, so stay tuned. We should probably wrap with something else. But Like a condom? We're singing all day, and you can't tame it. High tide, low tide, you know morning time yeah we're going strong heading up down the river oh lord i feel the reveling i feel a change on the rise mm.